So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, uh, the days are getting shorter. The air's crisp and cold. Uh, there was frost on the windshield this morning. Here we are. We're recording this in the beginning days of December 2023. Yeah. Another year coming to an end. Uh, how's it going for you today there, David? Well, it's going well. It's going, um, you know... Uh, Fast, it feels like I'm not sure when December hit. It feels like yeah, I yeah, went yeah, from yeah. August to December and just uh, you know a flash. But uh, yeah. no, it's going it's going well. I'm I'm still I'm still in denial that Christmas is around the corner. Um, that's also an issue. But yeah, how about you? Well, I am not in denial that Christmas is around. The corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we went, uh, I, I pulled out of storage, uh, more than a dozen boxes, crates, barrels, large Tupperware uh, containers of Christmas decorations. Okay. Then went and bought more. Oh, well, yeah. And, okay. <laughs> and, and went full on Clark Griswold with the house this year. <laughs> I was, I was, I was on a ladder. I had uh, no business being on a ladder. Uh, uh, I was on a ladder, you know, hanging, hanging lights on. Anything on that gutters. hold a light. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh uh, my gosh. I don't know exactly what got into us this year. The, the idea was we were going to simplify this year and we did manage, we gave away, I think we either threw away gay or gave away, I think eight of those tubs full of oh, Christmas man. decoration wow. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we upgraded, we simplified, but the house looks better than, uh, I've done a better job on the, on the outside than I've ever done before. Okay. I'm still, well, I'm still, I mean, I can't compete with uh, some of uh, folks in other neighborhoods in our town. There are some neighborhoods that really, I, I don't know whether do they have, did they have a meeting? Do they figure, is there a competition going on the street? Maybe that's happening. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. There, there are some neighborhoods where the, the yard is so full of these inflatable figures. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It, well, you know, it's interesting too because um, up here in you know Williamson County and you know mm -hmm. Franklin, I am told that there are some services now that obviously you know they come out and they will do all your exterior lighting. Oh, sure, yeah. They'll put it's up big all, business. Yeah, it is. And somebody told me that they spend ten thousand dollars on Christmas mm -hmm. lights because they have somebody professionally come and put this whole yeah yeah. Uh, the theatrical production yeah. they're out there and uh, yeah so but man more power to you for uh, taking it on and being able to uh, do it you didn't like a uh, short circuit and blow a, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a no, turkey to, no. you know fly off the table and all that stuff no 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 uh, you know what? I got a, uh, I got a, some attaboys from Allie, which is really what I was going for. Well, that's all that matters. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and I got, a, I got a sense of accomplishment. Now I know I'm going to have to take it all down in a few weeks. I'm already uh, dreading that, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, and that's a letdown because, you know, you, the adrenaline and the excitement, you know, you're willing to endure whatever to get it all up there. But after it's over, it's just a big pain in the butt to get it all <laughs> wound up and put back. So. Well, uh, Hey, this is not the first irrational thing I've done in my life. Uh, and, and in, on this podcast, uh, we talk a lot about, 
irrational, non-rational behavior, behavior that appears on the surface not to be rational. Mm-hmm. But beneath the surface, there are some reasons for what we do. They might be emotional reasons rather than rational reasons, mm-hmm. but they are reasons nonetheless. Yeah. Almost everything we do makes sense on some level. Exactly. Hey, we got a guest coming up who's going to help us dig into that whole concept. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we're going to talk about food. I've really been looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. Listeners, you'll enjoy it. I guarantee you're going to love this conversation when we come back with Ali Shapiro in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. This is a conversation I have been looking forward to ever since we got this guest on the schedule. Um, Our guest today is uh, Ali Shapiro, the host of the uh, Top 1% podcast, Insatiable. And uh, she's here to talk about her own recovery journey and this link, which I have, uh, David, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Mm-hmm. I've so long seen this connection between uh, sobriety from alcohol right, and comfort eating, compulsive eating. <laughs> and, with, and it's not just with alcohol. So I'm mm. a recovering sex addict and I was warned up front about the freshman 15. This mm-hmm. is going to happen. I'm going to get sober. Yeah. I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to stop finding my comfort in sexual gratification, and I'm going to find another way to find, to, to, to get around my feelings. So Ali Shapiro, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be amongst like-minded people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Ali, how did you get on this train? How did, how did you become part of the sobriety conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well again, my journey is with food and, Mm -hmm. um, binging emotional eating. And, um, I think it, it really, I think the best place to start is, um, I had cancer when I was 13 Uh, and when I grew up in the eighties and nineties and we heard that you're healthy when you're, you're thin. Right. And Mm -hmm. even though the thinnest I had ever been was from chemotherapy and the (laughs) thickest I had ever been, it was like, does not compute. Right. (laughs) So after treatments, I had, I had been trying to lose weight, which is even how I found the tumor in my neck. I was taking my pulse in my neck. I, I like had no idea about the body. Um, Mm -hmm. but after, you know, losing all that weight and you get compliments and you get attention Uh and I was like, and I have to be healthy, which equals skinny. And Mm -hmm. in high school, I could like over exercise my emotional eating. Mm -hmm. So it was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, this isn't that much of a problem. It's, it's controlling my life and, and everything, but I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm still thin. So it's not a problem. Right. Yeah. And then as we, transitions often cause us to fall off the wagon with whatever Uh, we are because transitions bring up a lot of uncertainty. Um, And so when I went to college, my emotional eating really turned into binging. uh And I was like, I'm so disciplined. Like I work hard. I get good grades. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. I am a good sister. I'm a good friend. How can I not figure this out. And at the same time, my health was getting worse. Uh Um, So I had tried antibiotics and Accutane for my skin and my skin was still horrible. And Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with depression and tried all the different antidepressants and nothing was helping. And Oh, those are fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then my first job out of college, I um, was actually closer in your neck of the woods. I was moved to um, relocated to Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh And it was like, it was, it's not very young town to be in. (laughs) And, um, my boss and I didn't get along and it was like the first time I ever had problems with, like, I was so good in school. So Uh then to have problems with my boss and I was, I was diagnosed with IBS and given my cancer history, they did a colonoscopy. There was nothing they could find. And my eating just got worse and worse. And I had fa- I went to a holistic nutrition school a couple years later, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and found the field of functional medicine, which mm-hmm. this was about 20 years ago. Yeah. This is it's hard to explain to people in the media environment, but there was no social media. 
a lot of magazines didn't have health sections, you know, Um, and it was just in its infancy. And I really was able to connect a lot of my health issues to gut issues that resulted from the chemotherapy. So Western medicine saved my life and it destroyed my body. And and I'm Whoa. the first generation of childhood cancer survivors. So there was like no one to say, hey, look out for this, right? Uh-huh. It was just like Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And so by healing my gut through just some foundational principles, I had to get off processed foods. Like I didn't even mm-hmm. know what that was at the time. You uh-huh. know, I was like, right. I'm, yeah, eating sure. I'm eating soy dogs. <laughs> no, the dogs are not healthy for you. They were also yeah. driving up my cravings and everything. Uh-huh. Um but I felt amazing. And I was able to really reverse my IBS, my skin cleared up, my mood stabilized. But then I found whenever I was stressed, I couldn't keep it up. Uh, so mm-hmm. when I would go for my scans to make sure I was still cancer free and not having secondary cancers, I would binge on sugar for six weeks by the uh, time from sure. the time I scheduled the appointment to the time I got the scans to the time I would meet with the oncologist. And I was like, I know food can be medicine. I know sugar feeds on cancer. Why am I doing this? Like this logically, and it would make my mood, it would drive up anxiety. It would it'd bring mm-hmm. back some of my IBS symptoms. Or when I was like bored, but stressed with my job. I know that sounds weird, but I was like overwhelmed with it. Uh-huh. But I was like, this mm-hmm. is, I don't, this, what am I doing with my life? Um, and so at that time I had se- started seeing clients on the side because I had my holistic health counseling degree, but I had was just doing grocery store tours and just teaching people about how to get off processed foods. No one knew what kale was at the time. Mm-hmm. We were also calling quinoa quinoa. Like it was just a different, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and so I noticed with my clients that after the fourth session, we'd stop talking about food. And again, this was a different media area era. So I thought I was the only one struggling. Like I thought this mm-hmm. was a me problem, not this you know, universal issues with food. And so I went back to grad school um, at the University of Pennsylvania to really understand what was going on, what was working, and what was the root issues of why all of these really amazing, really hard people who were hardworking, disciplined, trying to do their best, but struggling with food, what was really going on underneath that? And what I discovered in my research was that food is really about safety. Uh, It's mm. not about willpower or discipline. And I love the conversation you all had. I don't know if you even remember. It was in your January episode about implicit and explicit learning. Uh Mm -hmm. Remember that one? And you were talking, explicit is like more cognitive, Uh but implicit is more emotional and sensory. And from the time we're born, food is coupled with attachment. It's coupled with safety. Uh You know, Mm -hmm. it's really uncomfortable to be hungry. And when we're babies, we know that we will be taken care of if we're fed. That's not just not Mm -hmm. only are we being relieved of being hungry, but it's saying, hey, you belong. Uh And Mm -hmm. what neuroscience has now shown us and that Maslow's hierarchy of needs actually got wrong was that belonging is even more important than your basic needs. Uh, and, if you oh. think, and if you think about that, that makes sense. Like yeah. I couldn't really take care of myself until I graduated from college. Uh-huh. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. yeah, yeah. You need to belong. You need to have the sense that you're going to be comforted and taken care of by someone else who can secure those needs for you uh, of right. shelter, of food, mm-hmm. of comfort. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so what I realize is that when we're turning to food, it's really for this implicit sense of it's all going to be okay. It doesn't mean it has to go my way. It doesn't mean anything, but I, I need this sense of it's all going to be okay. Um, and the work is actually to evolve into an adult sense of safety where we mm-hmm. can figure out what are our needs and how do we become our own best friend to get those met and kind of become the parent, you know, the yeah. caretaking figure mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we're not kids and babies anymore. So that's a long, long thing, yeah. but that's yeah, kind yeah. of the my story and how I got into this uh, work. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, Ali, I am um, just in my own experience. I, I, when I got sober from alcohol, uh, it, 
I think the first year I kept Bluebell ice cream in business. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they probably had to hire people uh, the year I got sober. And um, there's this, uh, I didn't understand that I was still operating out of that. I want what I want when I want it space. I just knew that uh, it comforted me and I didn't drink and that was all that mattered. But, you know, if anybody ate my ice cream or uh, I'd go to get it and it was gone, it was like somebody had poured out my liquor. You know, same, same reaction, you know, pissed and angry and, you know, (laughs) looking to take, take no prisoners, you know, someone's going to own this. Um, What's going on with that? I I love this question. So I'm going to give you a story about my son and it will help relate, I think, to this. Uh So most of us, again, growing up, your your generation, my, I mean, we're kind of in the same generation. Um, I think things are changing. But they joke that like the eighties and nineties and before was the era of like benign neglect parenting. Mm-hmm. Like uh-huh. you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like uh-huh. it was. Um, and so the first couple years of our lives, we actually need our caretakers, especially the first three years, to model healthy nervous system balance, ha- healthy um, emotional regulation. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to give you a story, and this will kind of it, it, show what's going on. So my son was like two and a half. And we, he's four now. So he has a little bit more emotional regulation, but not much. And I was taking him out to my parents. They were going to watch him for the day. And he has these slippers that make him feel safe. And mm. I forgot the slippers. I mean, we've been carting these slippers around everywhere, right? Because, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> and so when we get to my parents, Essa is my son's name. He's like, where are my slippers? Because it's a transition for him, right? He all of a sudden is not in his home. He's he's all nerves and energy and emotion, mm. right? Uh-huh. He, and mm-hmm. his prefrontal cortex isn't developed. And I said, oh, as I forgot them. And he had a meltdown, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, I, I want what I want, right? Which uh-huh. is what you were feeling with the, with the ice cream, mm-hmm. right? right? He's like, I need my slippers. We have to go home. And we live in the city. My parents lived in the burbs at the time. And I said, Essa, <laughs> I said, I, and what I said to him was, I said, I know you're upset. So I just acknowledged it. I said, uh-huh. this is really upsetting. You feel unsafe without your slippers. He's like, that's why we have to go back. And in his tantrum, the need wasn't for the slippers. The need was to feel safe in that transition. Mm -hmm. And what I had to model for him was your emotions, I can handle them because he can't Mm -hmm. do this for himself, right? Yet your emotions, there's a need contained in there. It's not that you really want the slippers. You want to feel safe. And the way that you are going to feel safe in this moment is me showing you that your emotions don't scare me. And that I'm still mm-hmm. holding the boundary that we're not going back to 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 uh-huh. to get these slippers. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. I mean, I have never seen him like he melted down for like three minutes. And my dad, who is almost 79, grew up in the projects, didn't have nearly the parenting that I had, let alone the parenting that we're now uh-huh. understanding was like, Essa, you can't cry like that. People are going to make fun of you. And I'm like, dad, your <laughs> cortex isn't fully developed. And he's like, no one worried about my prefrontal cortex. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. So What's the- <laughs> because when we want what we want with food, we're actually not really clear on the, the more core need uh-huh. that we actually need in that moment. And we really haven't had it modeled for us to like have the adult tantrum, like, uh-huh. Oh, I want, I want this. But, but, it, and then to give ourselves the space to kind of have the, ta- you know, again, the metaphorical tantrum, uh-huh. but then ask ourselves and we're told it's about willpower and discipline. Right. So mm-hmm. what we think we need is more restriction When what we really need in the moment is what feels hard right now? What is driving me Uh to the Bluebell ice cream or me? It was peanut Uh M&Ms. You know, what's driving me to that? And how, what is that need there that actually needs met? Uh Um, And so I can give you a a food, a food and alcohol example, actually, of Uh one of my clients, if that'll help. Oh, yeah. Sure, yeah. So I was working with a client in my Truce with Food group, and she said, you know, I'm making progress with understanding my, uh, the core, like identifying the core emotional needs. And I'm still struggling when I go out to eat with other people. Mm. And I tend to eat and drink to, um, like, to give myself energy because I'm an introvert 
And I feel like when I go out to eat, I have to keep everyone talking. I have to, like, it's my responsibility to make sure everyone's having fun because I'm the fun party person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, what do you really need? Like, really, first of all, I said, well, what do you want? How do you want that meal to go? Uh You know, she said, well, I I don't want to drink and I don't, and I want to eat healthfully because I don't feel good afterwards. Okay. So what do you need for that to happen? Oh, I need space to think and just tune into myself rather than getting wrapped up in in everyone's energy and being so depleted. And I said, okay, so what if you then the, what if, if you need that, maybe you need to not stop talking. Like maybe you need to let someone else, you know, offer the conversation there. Uh Um, And I said, and I wonder if other people are introverted and you talking the whole time never actually gives them a chance to be able to talk. Uh And so you have over the years feel like it's your responsibility to be the one who's always talking, which disconnects you from your need to like re-energize yourself by taking some time to yourself. And she was like, oh. Oh my God. Now I'm so excited for this meal because I have a plan, not a plan of what to eat or not to eat, uh-huh. but I've identified my need is to like not talk the whole time uh-huh. and so that I can re-energize myself. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, let's experiment and see what works with you know that. And she came back and she's like, oh my God, other people actually talked. I got my energy back. <laughs> and the food and the alcohol, those were really the solution, not the problem uh, to... Yeah. In that case, she was using it to fuel her energy Uh um, and to kind of numb her to this pressure of having to be like the ringleader in the conversation. Uh And so it was like, oh, I ate well, everyone had a good time. And it was like, oh, I can relax and get my energy back. Uh So does that, Mm. I hope that example. No, it's a great, great answer. Because I I was thinking while you were talking about the comforting aspect of really this is what you're asking for you're asking to be comforted and belong and this and this i was thinking as you were talking about that um i felt as alone in my sobriety as i did it in in my drinking and Mm -hmm. that um explains a great deal (laughs) it explains a lot of things actually but um but i did i looking back i think i'd say yeah initially because i don't know if everybody was on the train with me i don't think everybody understandably uh had bought in with me and I felt very alone in that. And I, and I felt like I wasn't understood and all the sort of victim mindsets too that kick in. But that makes great, great sense. I don't want to make the thing about me, but it just was a really uh, key point that really uh, jumped out when you were talking about that was like, yeah, I felt as damn lonely as, um, mm-hmm. you know, before. So thank you yeah. for that answer. Yeah. That, that, that connects yeah. a big dot for me. Yeah. And I love that you brought up aloneness because, you know, right now we have an epidemic of loneliness Uh, and people think that the the cure to loneliness is just to be around other people. But the the academic definition of loneliness is that your social needs aren't being met. Uh Mm -hmm. And if you are in sobriety or not drinking, and those can be different terms, right? right? right. For sure. Um, And you don't feel like people understand it, right? you feel so alone. Uh Like you don't feel Mm -hmm. understood. You don't feel seen. And I think the challenge with food is that nature actually designed food to bring us together. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, and and it's interesting. I I would love to ask you with ice cream, you went to ice cream. Do you, you, do you have really positive associations with that from when you were young? Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 In fact, my grandfather would take us out for ice cream and we would, he'd take us to Dairy Queen when we'd go to his little town in Illinois to visit him. And we'd take all the grandkids to Dairy Queen without the parents, by the way, and uh, just load us up. You know, that's back when nobody had to have a car seat. You just piled in and laid down, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but he'd take us to Dairy Queen and, and he'd get us all, you know, an ice cream cone or a dilly bar and we'd all eat it and be just, you know, a mess. And he'd go, who wants another one? And we'd all, oh, I want it. Uh-huh. You know, there were no parents there to like say, this is probably a terrible idea. Don't, you know, stuff them with this. Yeah. And we come back just sick, but we had the best time. We were all connected, my cousins and myself and my grandpa. And yeah, I have very positive uh, associations with it. Yeah. And that's that safety I'm talking about. It was like, I belonged. And so like when um, Dr. Um, 
Gordon Newfield. Um, he is, uh, um, yeah, Newfield. I'm sorry. He's a developmental psychology. He has this great quote that says, "There's nothing quite a, uh, addictive as something that almost works." <laughs> and it's like, oh, <laughs> I love oh wow! <laughs> and I love that because it's like the ice cream almost works, right? Yeah. It's like it's associated with that belonging, and and it's not a bad thing to have that comfort. We need that. We need each other. Uh-huh. But it's like when we are just getting the ice cream and we're not getting the belonging with it, uh-huh. it's like you're never satisfied yeah. because it's like, it almost works, you know? Yeah. That might explain the three bowls. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, when my son just turned four and we had a birthday party and we had this like cake for him. He wanted a rainbow cake. It was like so sugary. Um, and my brother-in-law was like, I can't believe Essa, he's been looking forward to this cake and he had three bites. I can't believe his discipline. And then he just, stopped eating it and went to play. And I said, it wasn't discipline. It was, it was healthy belonging. Like we're here to mm-hmm. celebrate him. Everyone's cheer. Like we just sang happy birthday for Essa. Like he feels safe in his attachment with, with Carlos, who's my husband and I, and his grandparents. It's not just all on the parents, like the community has come to celebrate him. So mm-hmm. he got what he needed, the sweetness, right. but then he wanted to run and play with his friends because it's, it, it's the food is just, the medium to communicate that he matters here and that he's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So that's, I love that quote about, you know, addiction. That's really related to food. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering about uh, triggers. I had a podcast yeah. conversation yesterday about triggers. It seems to me that we've identified one loneliness must be a trigger. Uh, are there other kind of common triggers that can kick us into this compulsive behavior, Alex? Yes, 100%. Okay. So I have my clients, when they start thinking about food, I call it food noise, right? Like it could be like three o'clock in the afternoon. And if they're at work, they're like, oh, I know Shirley has the Hershey candies mm-hmm. that, you know, like, you know where mm-hmm. they are or, <laughs> <laughs> or it could be 10 a.m. and you're fantasizing about what you're going to eat when you get home, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. What you want to do is the the first question I always have clients ask, and this is a completely different way of thinking about this, but why does this make sense? Uh, not, oh, how do I stop? How do I, you know, not bring the food in the house? How do I, you know, drink a water before I go past Shirley's desk? You just uh, want to start thinking like, why does this make sense? And you want to think what, what, and what are these triggers, right? Because of mm-hmm. the connection and belonging, there's something that feels hard that is disconnecting you from the safety that you're, you're looking for. Uh. Uh, and so I have clients ask what's at the tail end of this T A I L. Mm-hmm. And the T is tiredness. Mm-hmm. Um, and my clients are so shocked at like 50% of their, their eating triggers, especially around sugar. And they're just tired uh, and they're, mm. they're turning at three o'clock at 10 AM or at, you know, I deserve this at the end of the day because they're just so depleted and exhausted. Right. Mm. And so identifying the real root cause is really important because people really beat themselves up. Oh, I don't have willpower. I don't have discipline versus like why is food the solution, right? Uh, It's like, mm -hmm. I'm so tired and I still need to, some of my clients, especially the work to home transition. Oh my God, I still have all this stuff to do at night. And what I just really want to do is like go to bed, but I can't. So that is often where uh, that tired trigger will come in. A is for anxiousness. And really, I think of it as uncertainty from the outside. So we are still coming off of COVID, right? And the stats of how people have um, alcohol use, food, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and but COVID was this like uh, uncertainty from the outside, uh-huh. right? Like mm-hmm. what's going on? What's causing this? Uh-huh. Lockdowns, then like families were split over like, you know, it was yeah. just like, there was all this uncertainty. Um, when could you even get to a gym again? You know, I mean, like, could you even secure the food you need, the food supply? Mm -hmm. And so when we have uncertainty coming from the outside, we often turn to food to feel that sense of groundedness. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, nature design, like when I survey clients, it's like, what are your memories of 
important thresholds. It's like, oh, when my grandfather died, people brought us meals. Uh, Thank God mm -hmm. you had that. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like that's a really mm -hmm. sad transition. Um, and our food connects us to our culture. Uh -huh. It connects us to earth. It connects us to things that make us feel bigger than ourselves. Um, and so again, it's not a bad thing, but when we're doing it chronically, uh -huh. because we don't know what we need in those transitions, that's when it can be challenging. The third one is inadequacy. And I think of this as the uncertainty coming from the inside. Mm. I don't oh, feel I enough. You. I feel too much here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dave, you you were talking about um, feeling alone in your uh, early sobriety and, mm -hmm. and not drinking. And a lot of times my clients, they might have other health issues. Mm -hmm. And so they can feel like, oh my God, I like if someone has Hashimoto's and they need to go gluten free. Uh -huh. I had one client, she's from like South Philly. She like goes home to Thanksgiving and she's like, okay, I'm, I'm bringing my own mashed potatoes because the way my dad makes them is full of wheat. And I, I can't do that, you know? And uh -huh. she's like, I, the first time she tried it, he was like, what are you doing with your bougie mashed potatoes? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not trying to create a fight here. I'm uh -huh. just like, I like, I'm trying to like make this as easy as possible, you know? And it's like, so we talked about having a conversation and her really explaining things, but often clients feel like, oh, I don't want to get a salad because I don't want it to look like I'm trying and I'm still overweight or, you know, mm -hmm. or I don't want to be a burden to people, the hostess mm -hmm. or whatever. So that's mm -hmm. kind of an example of inadequacy, feeling too much or not enough, but also outside of food. And that can make us turn to food. You know, a lot of clients they'll feel like, oh, that this work project, I just got really, like really hard feedback and I just want to eat. Right. And again, mm -hmm. it's that like, I want what I want. And it's, it's not yeah. that you need perfect feedback, but you need in that case, really intimate connection of someone to say like, what's going on? That's hard. Like you just need a witness, you know, mm -hmm. can I get a witness? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. exactly. Um, and then the loneliness, uh -huh. which we which we talked about, which again is your social needs not being met. And I really think it's when we feel like we can't bring our full selves forward. And about, you know, 50% of my clients are in sobriety and they talk about like in the beginning, right? Like just saying, you know, I'm not going to drink, you uh -huh. know, I, and, and I'm just, you know, using whatever you need to do to, to like get people not to bother you. But as time goes on, you, you strengthen and you feel like you can share more of yourself of like with certain people, right? You, you know, it's, I'm not saying share it with everyone because not everyone's going to be receptive, but you develop discernment. Um, and the same is true with why we turn to food is we feel like we can't bring certain parts to ourselves. Like yeah. when I, what I ultimately realized I needed during my scanxiety season was to tell like, like you, I had internalized this, like, I have to be this strong cancer survivor and I, I have to act like I'm not scared, but it was like, okay, can I ask my sister to come to the, to the oncology appointment with me? When my parents call to ask me how I'm doing, can I share that I'm really scared about these scans? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and having that support rather than trying to just isolate myself and be the strong cancer survivor, really enabled me to not turn to food anymore because I was getting the support and the belonging that of being witnessed in this like difficulty that I was going through rather mm. than just being like, I'm fine, I'm fine, but I wasn't fine. Yeah. So that's like another example of loneliness um, and how wow. that leads to food. Wow. Can you talk to us a little bit about your truce system? I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I realized is that our language really informs, like it's not just a metaphor, it's a, it's a whole story in and of itself. Right. right, exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. And so truce is about stopping the battle with mm. food. Mm -hmm. And that includes like, I should be eating this because someone else told me, because now we have so much more information about how health, uh, how food can contribute to health. Uh -huh. yeah. And food is medicine and it's also connection. It's also celebration. It's also, you know, this comfort. And so truce is about two things. First, figuring out what foods work for you, but doing that through blood sugar and gut health, because food is about the food, but it's also not about the food. So mm -hmm. especially with sugar and things like that, the more you eat, the more you want, because it puts you on this blood sugar roller coaster and mm -hmm. all yeah. of that stuff. 
But the way that I do this is I help people, I give them experiments because part of this battle mentality it is replicated amongst a lot of the experts around here, right? Mm. We have people being like, come to my boot camp, you know? I mean, that's uh, a war metaphor, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Military. Uh. Or, you know, even a lot of good-meaning people, it's like, don't bring food in the house. It's like, well, okay, so now you're telling, like, oh my God, I, I can't trust myself around mm-hmm, food, right? Mm-hmm. So what I do is experiments with people so that they can start to realize that their body will tell them they can trust in themselves. And I'm working to repair that so that you realize you don't need to battle your body. So if you have cravings, that might be because you're not getting enough protein. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're tired, you may not be getting enough carbohydrates. So really tuning in so that you can trust that your body wants to want to be healthy and that yeah. you want to want to be healthy. Yeah. So that's the food piece. Mm-hmm. The emotional piece is looking at the stories that make us feel unsafe, mm. that make us feel so uncomfortable. Right. And that right. really make us feel like we are separate mm-hmm. in certain situations, not just around food, um, but in general. Mm-hmm. And most people in the, and we all have these stories of how to be good, how to be bad for belonging, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I was like a late bloomer. I struggled with my weight. So it's like, oh, you're good, Allie, because you're smart. So just work hard and study and be obedient you know, to this system. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I never had any body intelligence. I didn't have emotional mm-hmm. intelligence. Mm-hmm. So it's really expanding. Well, let, let me go back. So We all have stories of what makes us safe and unsafe and what makes us look good and what what we've gotten dinged for, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so these stories live in our bodies. They are the implicit memories that we've kind of, you know, and, and a lot of it with food isn't specifically trauma or anything. It's actually what's been normalized. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. listening to your parents say like, you don't want to, you know, oh, look at that person. You know, they're they're heavy or they're this, or it's like, we're hardworking. You don't want to be lazy. You know, it's mm-hmm. these things that we don't think of like, they're like, thro- like you would never throw think- Throwaway lines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throwaway lines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so- We have stories that are like, this is what's good to be. This is what's bad to be. And they live in our bodies. They are implicit. Mm -hmm. So in Truths with Food, we look at what what is the story that's causing you to turn to food? Because when you feel like you've been bad, not just with food, but other things that make you feel guilty, right? Mm -hmm. My client who... um, you know, she thought to be good out at eating with other people, she had to keep the conversation going. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's how I look at fun and people want to hang out with me. Mm -hmm. Another example of a client who is sober as well is she's like, I don't even feel like I eat when I'm stressed. She's like, and we we like dissected this one day and she really felt unproductive. And she had a huge story about, she had taken some rest And she felt guilty about the rest and not getting even the small things done that she wanted to get done. And Mm -hmm. so as she was walking home, she started thinking, okay, I'm going to do the chocolate, then I'm going to do the cheese. And and like she was started planning her meals Mm -hmm. and it was, she felt guilty about being unproductive and not being stressed out that day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she runs her own business. So she had this whole story about what it means to be successful and how you have to be productive every day. So that story was constantly making her feel unsafe because Mm. you can't be super productive all the time. Yeah. So those are some examples of the stories um, that make us turn to food. And so truce with food is about identifying what are these stories, right? Mm -hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. why does it make sense that you're turning to food? Because food has been coupled with this sense of like belonging that is so central. We, we need each other, even though in America we're, you know, bred to be in, hyper-independent. We need right. each yeah, other. Right. Interdependence, the happy medium between codependence and independence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's about really then self-authoring a new story. Mm-hmm. So my, for example, with my client who went out to eat, it was like, okay, you have this idea that you have to be like the ringleader of fun and all this stuff. What if we start measuring other things? Like if your needs get met, like, what do you really want to get out of events? What? Do, how do you really want to show up? Can you still be invited if you're not 
the fun person all the time. It doesn't mean you have to never be fun, Uh but this Mm -hmm. is where we get into the all or nothing. It's like, oh my God, I have to always be good Uh Um, versus being more discerning about how do I want to show up and what really works for me now? Maybe that worked in my family of origin. A lot of times what worked in school to belong, you know, amongst our peers Uh and the school system, but it's like, we're adults now. There are so many more choices. So it's really getting people to self-author the story based on what's important to them now uh, and how they want to show up so they can really feel the safety within, an adult sense of safety, uh-huh. and take those manageable risks and know that they've got themselves. And that creates this inner stability and re- recreates that feeling of, I've got this. Uh, so, yeah. and. And that's what then you can still use food to celebrate, but you don't do it every night saying I deserve this with mm-hmm. three, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is that yeah. clear? Yeah. I hope it's clear because yeah. it's a really different approach, mm. but it works really, really well. Right. You know, what strikes me is, you know, we often talk, especially this is a legacy of uh 12 step language. And I, I'm so grateful for the 12 step world and the 12 step tradition, but we talk about addiction as insanity. Uh-huh. When the truth is, there's always a reason. There is an explanation. Uh-huh. It, on some level, what the choices we make made sense. Right. They worked for a little while. Yeah. 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 I'm so glad that you brought that up, Nate, because I agree 100%. Like, yeah. I think what we take as normal is so unhealthy and then we mm-hmm. blame the people who are kind of the canaries in the coal mine uh-huh. mm-hmm. and we try to fix them rather than saying, what is this? Mm-hmm. What is this pointing to? You know, I yeah. mean, it's like I had cancer at 13 and there were barely any childhood cancer people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the time. And now cancer, I mean, it's only exploded. Like what if we had looked at why, why are these people getting cancer? Uh-huh. You know, there's not a lot in prevention and that's, uh-huh. that's like a tangible example, but I believe the same thing with addiction, with mm-hmm. alcoholism, uh-huh. with disordered eating, which not even eating disorders are like a, actually a much smaller percent of uh-huh. the population. Last time I checked, it's like three to 4%. And mm-hmm. there's some, there's some inclination that of course they're, there's, they're under, yeah. they're underdiagnosed, uh-huh. right. but most people I know have a disordered relationship to food. They feel guilty right. whenever exactly. they yeah. enjoy something or, uh-huh. you know, and again, we could, there's the food supply. There's a lot of factors into this, but what if we looked at those of us who struggle as the canaries in the coal mine to a really unhealthy emotional environment, uh-huh. mm-hmm. we would have a completely different culture at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the disordered eating uh, piece of it too, Allie, because I've, I've got clients that once uh, they're uh, maybe free from this uh, preoccupation with their substance, um, if they have a history of disordered eating of some kind, binging, purging, or just completely uh, not trusting themselves with food so they don't eat at all, um, that tends to kind of pop up on the seesaw end of it, you know, as the sobriety of, uh, so, you know, so-called sobriety of abstaining from this behavior or the substance over here. But suddenly I'm hearing, well, I purged um, this week twice and I did this and I had this binge and I, you know, but interestingly, I have as many men and they're younger men um, who are now mm-hmm. admitting to this behavior than as, as women. So it's not in my world, it's not a female thing. It's I have young males that say, you know, and they've got body dysmorphia, all kinds of mm-hmm. distorted ideas of what they're supposed to look like because of a bunch of reasons. And tell, tell me about some of how that seesaw of, you know, so I'm not drinking, but why now am I starting this um, old habit that kind of um, maybe I didn't struggle with so much when I was active in my uh, alcohol use? Yeah. And I, I just want to say, I'm so glad you brought up um, because boy, young boys, men, I mean, they're some of the fastest growing um, groups mm. of challenges mm-hmm. with eating. And mm-hmm. we know... And I think of the the men that I know who are in sobriety tend to be the most sensitive, like thoughtful, not that you like want to rank people, but, Mm -hmm. and they know that there's a correlation between 
like what we think of as feminine, right? right? Like being in touch mm-hmm. with your feelings. Mm-hmm. And the more that you're identified as like on that spectrum for, for men, the more likely you are to have the, those eating issues. So I'm just glad that you brought that up because I feel like no one's talking about that. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. I want people to know, I mean, it's a thing. It's yeah. really a thing. And I've had a lot of like my male clients, I, I love them. I mean, they are like trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, um, especially like they have some, you know, issue i mean they're trying to be provider i mean there's a lot of pressure on men as well as mm-hmm. is what i just wanted to say. no one wins in this culture yeah um <laughs> so i think what happens and and again i think i just for everyone listening i do think you have to focus almost on one thing at a time i think uh-huh. it's really hard to do to do those things so i think when people are in their early days of sobriety they're still being they're still building capacity right to be with all of the emotions uh-huh. that they were numbing out with whatever they were they were using uh-huh. And I think what's really, um, someone, one of my clients who's sober, she said, you know, the reason I struggle with food now and I didn't before is because I can be perfect in my sobriety Mm. Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to be perfect with food. Yeah. The, and I said, because you need to eat, mm-hmm. right? You, mm-hmm. You're at least making choices three days, three, th- three times a day. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a good explanation of um, the next level of healing that almost has to happen and right. not, not to do it right away. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, you, it, it has to feel like this is the right time. But to me, perfectionism, I used to think that it was like, oh, you wanted to look like Martha Stewart and have everything. And I was like, I don't, Mm -hmm. I was like, that does not interest. I'm not very domestic. (laughs) What I now understand perfectionism is, is like zero risk, right? Um, There's no risk there. Um, And that's about, in, in psychological safety, the definition is feeling like you belong and that you can take manageable risks. And so in, if, if you have to eat, you know, a couple times a day. Um, it's hard to get it perfect. Uh-huh. It's hard to think like, oh, you know, um, I didn't get, I didn't perfectly balance my blood sugar or, you know, I didn't eat the organic meat or, oh my God, this has some sugar in it. Or right. I was at a birthday party and I celebrated. And so the shame of, oh my God, now I'm going to gain weight or I fell off the plan, which is why I don't give people any plans, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't want this to be another fuel of shame. But I think that's what ends up happening is the need for no risk. You're, you're dealing with so much risk right now uh-huh. with being sober, with, with, you know, with sticking, like being different in that way, because right. we know, again, our culture in general, I would not identify as sober, right? Yeah, like right. as a whole. Yeah. So you're right. already, it's a yeah, drunk planet, already, right? Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. So I already feel so separate. I need something whether it's in social situations or whatever, to just be connected. And again, food is designed for that, but it's not designed to give the belonging that you're probably like metaphorically starving for, Uh right? As Uh you're in your early sobriety days. Um, And then it's the, you have to crack the perfectionism nut of all or, which is the all or nothing, Uh right? Um, and I think food is a, a beautiful invitation into that. Mm. Does that to answer me, the that, question? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's... To me, that's a f- fascinating insight. Um, I quit drinking within the last year. And the toughest part of, of, not, of giving up the alcohol was alcohol was so connected to time with friends, hanging out at pubs, having conversations. Uh, it kind of a lubricant in parties. It was always walk around talking, laughing with a drink in the hand. The idea that if I don't have the drink in the hand or, uh, uh, or if I'm drinking something other than what others are drinking, now I feel awkward. I, I'm going to avoid the pub. I don't know how to make those connections. But if food has always had a positive or often had a positive social connection where I felt a sense of belonging around food, whether it's the family table or the family reunion or the community meal, whatever, then that sense of I don't belong, uh, I can medicate that anxiety with food, even if nobody else is around because of the emotional association. Yeah. That's it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of my clients overeat in in private, Uh right? right. And I'm like- And I'm like, oh my God, your food is a, how you're eating is a metaphor for what you're struggling with. Like it's the sense of separateness and then you're eating. No one else knows that, you know, you're eating all by yourself once you get in from the event. Right. Uh Right. 
And, but it's providing that sense of like, it's not just like, oh, I passed the event. It's like, oh, I got through that. I like, you need mm -hmm. the intensity of feeling. It's like almost you eat. Like I always, cause sometimes people ask like, well, what's the difference between like overeating and binging? And I'm like, it's the degree of separateness that you feel. Uh -huh. So often when people are binging, they actively feel separate, uh -huh. right? Like they mm -hmm. actively feel like something is so wrong with them somehow versus when they're overeating, it's like, oh, maybe I said the wrong thing. Maybe I looked weird. Uh -huh. I don't definitely know that, but it's, yeah. it's just the degree of separateness that someone feels. Well, uh, Ali, can food also be um, empowering? Because I have like a, a client who um, her husband gave her crap for her weight, you know, just completely. And she didn't feel like she had a voice to speak back to that because she had a lot of shame around food and her relationship with it and the weight, blah, blah, blah. And so um, she would fix healthy meals, eat healthy stuff in front of him, around him. And then he'd, you know, go about his life and she'd go about hers and, you know, time would go on and he couldn't figure out why she wasn't losing, you know, apparently any weight, uh, you know, because obviously if you just eat like I eat, you'll not blah, blah, blah. And... Uh, she was going in the closet and eating a bag of Oreos, you know, mm. a, a whole bag of Oreos. And I said, what do you feel when you do that? She said, well, it's my F you to my husband, but I can't say that. So I just go in and I eat, you know, mm. uh, but he's not going to control my food, you know, and, uh, and she felt empowered, you know, and uh, I thought that was, a, I thought that was an interesting thing because, you know, here she is basically saying, I'd really like to tell him where to get off, but. I don't feel like I can, so I just eat, I kind of yeah. eat at him. Yeah, well, and I feel like if we go back to like the stories, it's like she probably has a story that conflict is bad and uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is a perfect example of I'm going to look good, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to do what he wants because I, I don't want to broach this conflict of how, what is the best way to support you? Do you even want that? Like, mm -hmm. let's actually have an, in, an emotionally intimate conversation around mm -hmm. why is this important to you? Why is this important? Like all this. Instead, the story is like, okay, I have to eat good in front of him. Right. Right. And I have to eat perfectly. And then it's like, but it's not, she doesn't want to want to do that yet. Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. so, but the story around, and again, I don't know if she has a story around conflict. I mean, I would mm -hmm. have to take her through the process sure. to know yeah. actually what is her story, but it's probably also around challenging, you know, authority, you know, like a, a lot of things that, yeah. that can be, can be brought up. I see in, in partnership dynamics. Um, but yeah, I mean, but the problem is, is she thinks she's like, has this inner food rebel probably uh -huh. where really what she's doing is adults do not like their autonomy being taken away. Like yeah, no right. adult, right? Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, how often have any of us followed advice when people are like, you just gotta, you know, just break <laughs> up with it or just, just keep the alcohol. It's like, uh, no, we have to come to these conclusions ourselves. Uh -huh. And so for her, it's kind of like, yeah, she is rebelling, but she's, it's, the food is just a way to show that she's rebelling against like his demands uh -huh. in general. Uh -huh. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's probably a story around why they can't have a constructive conversation and him realizing like, how can you actually like support you? I mean, my husband, I'm obviously like super healthy. Cause I have, a, you know, I have a cancer history and he has some health stuff I wish he would take better care of. Right. Uh -huh. Um, and one of the things that like, Oh, every time he drinks a ton of coffee and he has some digestive stuff that would be remarkably better if he wasn't drinking so much coffee. And he's like, you judging me is not helping. Me. And I'm like, <laughs> like, You're right. Like I can't judge and shame myself into change. And uh -huh. actually what I need to do is say like, okay, you know, when you're ready to make these changes around your coffee, I'm here to support you. But I just, and, but I also said to him, I said, you know, part of my judgment is my own fear. I have the self-awareness. I was like, I'm afraid that something more serious is going to happen. And I hope you understand with my health history that I come by this honestly, uh -huh. you know? And mm -hmm. he's like, that's a different, if you come at me that way, uh -huh. it's different than like, you're on your fourth cup of Starbucks coffee today. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay, both of our, and in my work, I talk about how like the judgmental rebellious sides are really protectors. Right. Yeah. And we have to get to the, like, what's the need underneath all of the judgments we have of ourselves and other people. So it's like, 
that would, if, if her and her husband could have like a more productive conversation of like, what's going on for both of us? Yeah. Like, you know, because mm. I tell my husband, I'm like, there's these things called wellness widows. And it's like people who have really taken care of themselves, which I have. Uh -huh. And I don't like, I'm most afraid of losing you early. And like, that's a different conversation mm -hmm. than, you know, you know, yeah. so I don't know okay. if that, I hope that answers it, yeah. but it's, no, that's, that's, yeah. that's good. There, there are tons of issues in that story here and you hit yeah. on them. So that, there you go. <laughs> well, can we stop talking about the coffee because it's making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> and coffee can be healthy. It's just yeah. four cups. It's a lot. <laughs> let's not talk about, let's not be counting cups of coffee now. <laughs> All right. Oh. Well, Allie, this has been absolutely delightful. Uh, your podcast, again, is called Insatiable. But for those of our listeners who would really like to connect with you directly, is there a way they can do that? Yeah, yeah. I have, I don't know when this will air, but I have an upcoming series called Find Your Flow when it's all in flux. It's totally mm -hmm. free. It starts Wednesday, December 27th, and it's going to be about how to set real goals for real life, not perfection. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to talk about on January 10th, a framework of how people can, it's a nervous system framework for people to figure out, start to figure out what foods work best for them because everyone's different. And then on January 24th, Wednesday, all of these are from 12 to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, will be how to start thinking about why people's emotional eating makes sense. Um, so people can connect with me. Those are going to be interactive. Ask questions um, at alishapiro.com backslash flow. And mm -hmm. then I also have a monthly free gathering for people if they have questions. It won't be going on in January because I have this series, but people can go to alishapiro.com backslash gathering. And um, the, the first Tuesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, people can show up for, with any questions they have on their journey. Um, and then I also, my website, alishapiro.com, there's a comfort eating quiz there. Um, and I send out newsletters and, you know, emails about these kind of topics. Fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us, Allie. It's been an absolute delight. And I hope this is not the last conversation we have with you. Same. I just want to hear you both talk and like, <laughs> calm me down. <laughs> All right. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Our guest, Ali Shapiro, uh, was someone that I feel like helped me connect a big dot. And uh, Nate, I hope I didn't turn that into a, uh, you know, a mini therapy uh, session. For oh, no, 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 no. Uh, whenever I get a chance in these conversations to uh, bring up a personal story, I just tell myself, true or not, and I do think it's true. I think it helps our listeners connect with the topic and with us. It kind of humanizes the conversation. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you got up close and personal a little bit there with Allie. Well, you know, that was such a trigger for me when I, um, when I was early, uh, mm -hmm. in my, in my sobriety and, uh, but, but equating it with the reality that, you know, damn, I quit drinking and I'm, I'm as lonely as I was when mm -hmm. I was drinking and, but I was, yeah. you know, eating ice cream. So I guess I thought I was behaving, you know, somehow, yeah. but yeah. I was still, yeah. you know, running that place, but I love her, um, her, her expression of, um, how, how we're, I think how we're really looking for belonging, uh, yes. even beyond, you know, these other things that are, uh, that we think, are driving yeah. us, you know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and, and approaching it from that side of it, uh, makes mm -hmm. a big difference. I think in families and relationships and people who are trying to love someone who's struggling, yeah. you know, so I just yeah, had a great yeah. time. So, <laughs> you know, I had a big fear when I, when I made the decision to stop drinking alcohol, that I would not belong anymore right. in, in, uh, the, the, you know, the groups of which I, you know, customarily mm -hmm. am a part. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that was an unfounded fear. I still mm -hmm. very much belong. Mm -hmm. And alcohol was not an essential part of that connection. I had made it a part of the connection just because it was always co-occurring. Mm -hmm. But 
the truth is I can still have, I can still be vulnerable around others. I can still make deep connection, have meaningful conversation. I can still laugh and I can really remember it the next day. Yeah. I'm not drinking alcohol. So that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The people who love yeah. you and really are in your circle want to be with you, you know, right. and yeah. they'll, you know, play tiddlywinks if that's what it, it means to be with you. So, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, that's very, very good point. All right. Well, listeners, we have already come to the end of this episode. It's been a delightful conversation, uh, and there are more of them to come. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe by <laughs> Kathy Gifford. 